0: Welcome to Points and Politics. This is Bill Templeman. Uh. Pints and Politics is a podcast posted at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. This is episode 121. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes, Stitcher, and on my Substack site. We also are a an occasional panel discussion program on Trent Radio, CFFF, in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FM. On Pints and Politics, we explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough and Ontario and Canada. This episode was recorded on May 21st, 2023. Today, our focus will be on privatization of health care in Ontario. When the Ontario Health Coalition warned last spring leading into the provincial election that the Ford government was planning to privatize surgeries and diagnostic services, Ford repeatedly denied that that was his plan. Those claims are now shown to be totally false with Bill 60, the Ford government's hospital privatization legislation, passed into law on May 8th. So Joining me for this online discussion are Marion Burton, Dr. Paul Craig, nurse practitioner Megan Allen, and uh, activist Roy Brady, may be joining us uh, further on as we go forward. So, thank you uh, for taking part in this discussion today. So, here's my first question uh, Could we start with a summary of the context surrounding the current push to privatize healthcare in Ontario? In other words, what, what is the Ford government's long-term plans for healthcare. Where do they see how do they see healthcare being delivered in 5 or 10 years? It's Megan.
1: So, I think 5 to 10 years down the road, we're not really clear about where that's going to look that far and where we know is kind of more in a very near fashion in the next couple of years. What they've announced is that by this fall, they hope to increase the cataract surgeries by an additional 14,000 surgeries. They also look to, they want to expand the scope of surgeries and diagnostic centers to meet the needs of the population. And it looks right now like the focus is going to be on MRIs, CTs, colonoscopies, and endoscopies. And they've also announced they're hopeful that by 2024, they'll also be moving hip and knee replacements into these private for-profit clinics. Because of the third step uh, plan that they've announced is the introduction of the legislation, which is what we're talking about today with Bill 60. So that has been passed, and everything seems to be moving along at quite a rapid speed at this point. I think what we want to talk
2: about too, though, is that this is in direct violation to the Canada Health Act, and that's requiring that all medically necessary hospital and physician services be provided uh, without extra user charges or extra billing. It forbids physicians uh, whose entire education has been subsidized by the public from participating both inside and outside of public Medicare at the same time. And these provisions are like a bill of rights for patients to ensure that when we're sick and when we're elderly and when we're least able to pay, that care will be there for us. So the for-profit privatization of our public hospital services puts all of this in real and urgent danger. And there will be legal challenges to this Bill 60 and to the, you know, removing these mandatory medically necessary procedures out of our public Medicare system.
0: Okay. Now, I mean, the Ford government seems to be acting as if it has a mandate to privatize health care, yet no such mandate exists. Uh, And there's no evidence that uh, privatization will relieve wait times or increase efficiency. So why is this privatization movement still happening, and why now?
3: I think that this is a strictly political move. I don't see any other reason to do something like this because the reasons to not do something like this are many. And uh, I think that this is uh, catering to political supporters. That's my personal opinion. And people who are going to benefit from this are, are often corporations who are not medical people themselves, but business people, corporations who will set up these clinics and laboratories to reap a good profit in doing so. And a government that has provided them with this windfall, I think, will certainly get their support, financial and any other means that they can provide Mm -hmm. to show their support. So that's why I say this is a political move well
2: i'd I'd certainly agree with um with paul. it's it's Marion speaking, and I forgot to say my name the last time um yes. I did speak. so this what this is doing is taking the easy cases they're saying they're claiming out of the hospitals, the hips, the knees, the cataracts, the diagnostics that go along with it. But this is gonna really put our public hospital uh, systems in jeopardy of being able to sustain services. We know, we look at what's happening up in Minden right now. They're going to close the emergency department. There's been no effort to try and put, you know, staffing levels by the Ford government uh, to keep it open. And that Blue H is coming down. So for the rural communities, this is going to have devastating effect when you undermine a hospital's ability to provide services in a small community.
3: I see this as yet another step along a road of uh, privatization, corporatization of health care that has uh, really got its roots going back years and probably decades without getting into political philosophy. Uh, but I, 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 I wish more people were familiar with the term neoliberalism. Yes. Neoliberalism, it basically says uh, less government, well, their, their first promise is less taxes, which yes. immediately gets the attention of the public. Everybody likes to, to pay less taxes. And along with that is less government, less bureaucracy, in other words, uh, less regulations and rules to uh, cramp the style of uh, corporate entities and and privatization is one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism. So the the word is deceiving. Neo, which is new, and liberalism, which is based on free. And so it all, it sounds pretty good as a word. But really what it means is that under neoliberalism, individuals are free to do whatever the heck they want to do, and the government's not going to try to stop them. And, and that's you know, what we're seeing right now is... Uh, liberal, neoliberalism in its uh, full uh, full view, if you like, and uh, so less government, privatization is right in right straight from the book. And uh, so this has been going on for a long time. It goes back to the early seventies. This neoliberalism, it was championed by the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So this is no surprise to people who are familiar with that uh, uh, philosophy and approach to government. And uh, this is yet another step that they've taken on along the way. And uh, as to the, them having a mandate, I wrote a letter to the editor, which was printed just yesterday. And in it, I pointed out that this government was elected with 40% of the votes cast. And it's important to look yes. into how many votes were cast. 43% of eligible voters voted. So in other words, 40%. Of the forty-three percent who voted, gave us this government, and that they—the sum of that—is seventeen percent of eligible voters elected this government, and this Mm -hmm. is so. That's no mandate Mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination, as far as I can see, and uh, it's certainly not my government, and this is not my uh, my health act. They call it your health act. Mm -hmm. I don't think so.
0: Brady has just joined us, so welcome, Roy. I just have. a question, will, as a consumer, uh, will I have to pay for healthcare in the future? Now, is Doug Ford lying? I mean, in October 2014, I uh, sadly fell off my bicycle and fractured my left hip. I was rushed to PRH, PRHC in an ambulance, and lo and behold, the next day, I got a hip replacement. Uh, the total cost for to me, for this new hip in 2014, was $45 for the ambulance ride. Now I have told friends in the states about this experience, and they are in a aghast. Now. <laughs> But let's stick to Ontario here. If I were to break my other hip tomorrow and incurred a similar injury that resulted in another hip replacement, what would this new hip cost me in 2023? Well, currently
2: you would still go in the ambulance to the emergency department and you would be done under the public system. You wouldn't be going to a private clinic because they would not be doing urgent care. They would be doing elective for people who are in extremely good health. So if you have any kind of comorbidity in your health state, uh, they wouldn't touch you. So if you're diabetic, if you've got a heart condition, if you have obesity, if you have cancer, all those things, they would direct you to the public system. They would not accept you at all. Um, But if you just on wear and tear had to get your hip replaced and you went to a private clinic, chances are pretty good that they would routinely be upselling probably some medically unnecessary services, Uh, They might manipulate you into paying for unneeded extras. And that's where they make the profit. They make it sound like you really need this. It's far superior to what you're ever going to get under OHIP publicly funded procedures. And there's too many examples all across the country and other private clinics where this upselling is costing thousands and thousands of dollars to patients for things that they really don't need.
4: If I can just add to
2: that,
0: sure. the,
3: uh, I was just reading uh, about this kind of thing this morning, and there is a lot of out-and-out out double billing, we call it, double mm-hmm. dipping, call it if you like, where uh, the, the surgeon, the doctor, uh, bills OHIP mm-hmm. for his services, and which is fine, but his uh, office uh, under his direction is also charging the patient directly for uh, services which are included in the surgeon's fee. These are very clearly outlined in the the, the, uh, the fee book, which all doctors uh, base their fees on. It's it's the schedule of benefits is the official name of OHIP. in other words, it's the fee schedule, and uh, and this is an absolute crime it's a, it's contrary to the canada health act that marion mentioned it, no double billing and they do and and what's happening is that they're getting away with it the governments the governments provincial governments are not following up on this enforcing this charging these people getting them to pay people back or occasionally they do but not consistently and and the public is not made aware that these people are doing this kind of
4: thing. That, um, I'm very concerned about the further aims and goals of this particular government. So if you broke your hip this year, 2023, you, would, you could go to the hospital. What happens after that? Is there a possibility that uh, these particular surgeries will be permanently taken out of the hospital and given to the for-profit clinics? So if you broke your hip in, in a couple of years... You may have to go there.
0: Yes, it's it's interesting, Roy. You mentioned that because at the time, back in 2014, I got a bit of critical feedback from friends in Peterborough saying, "Look, my mother's been waiting for a hip for five years. How did you get one in one weekend?" And of course, the difference is, I arrived in an ambulance, whereas uh, you know, someone's uh, elderly parent had sort of chronic oh hip and degeneration. So, Roy, to your point, it sounds like that those people who just need a joint replacement, through, who, who are not an emergency case, as I was, they might be shift, shifted off to a for-profit clinic.
1: Mm-hmm. And the other really unfortunate okay. part that I think is important to point out, like Marion said, is that these clinics are going to be seeing less medically complex patients with less or no comorbidities, but there is actually evidence that supports that there's worse patient outcomes and even potentially higher death rates um, at for-profit clinics. Oof. Mm -hmm. which then, you know, adds further burden to we already overstretched healthcare system, emergency rooms, and staff that are, are really just burnt out and exhausted in our public healthcare care system.
0: Well, let me display my ignorance of the health system in, in total, but my understanding is, is that we're lacking. We need more nurses. We need more nurse practitioners. We need more medical specialists. We need more doctors. So when these private clinics and private hospitals open up, they're dealing with the same pool of people, right? It's like if you start another hockey team in Toronto, Toronto, well, there's not a surplus of elite players. Where are they going to come from?
2: That's the big question. So Mr. Ford has had five years to do something about the health care system. It's been known throughout at least that length of time prior to COVID that staffing levels were going to be a huge issue, retirements coming up, that sort of thing. And why would, if he was sincere in wanting to help the health care system, Why wasn't he doing initiatives to encourage more people training within various fields in the medical field? Why wasn't he providing incentives more recently for retired personnel to come back into the system? Why would he not value and respect current workers instead of you know the the whole bill one twenty four're holding wages to one percent even though inflation is going much higher than that, and now appealing the decision for bill one twenty four after it was ruled unconstitutional it's it's that oppression of workers who are burning out and you know they've got their own mental health issues to deal with under those stresses. Mm-hmm. He's done nothing to provide an easier or a quicker route for foreign immigration to who have medical uh, backgrounds to come into our Canadian system. There's a lot of things he could have been doing to support the healthcare system instead of doing nothing and now turning to uh, to a privatization route that will undermine the public system. I I
3: agree very much with you, Mary. A lot of these these things are points which I've been thinking and talking about for for years especially you know the getting doctors and uh, and getting doctors where we need them and uh, there's a lineup of uh, very well trained doctors waiting at the, the door into Canada uh, they would love to come here I, and part of Part of the reason that we're not bringing them in is the colleges of physicians and surgeons, which have their very, very excessively stringent rules that that block the inflow of doctors. And I'm talking from doctors who are trained in well-recognized systems, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. We have many of their confreres here already. And certainly it's important that we screen these people. That can be done very efficiently, and we can get them in the door. And once they're in, I think we need to tell them what the deal is. You know, you're welcome in Canada. We need you where we need you. That's where you're going, right. you're in Canada. And uh, give us X number of years, two, five, whatever. See if we do this, then we've got a system going, an, an influx of, of doctors. To tell mm-hmm. them to go to uh, where they're needed and after that you can go over wherever you like and but, but which is fine because w- there's another doctor following them into the country and a lot of these people will stay they, they, it's it's nice in in uh, Sault Ste. marie or wherever you like Sioux lookout you know some people will stay and if they don't fine we've got access and the same thing with medical students and new doctors right. Same deal, you know. Fine, you you graduated. Uh, one of you pointed out that the the government, the people, have paid for the vast majority of their education. Payback time. We need you, so and so, go give us x number of years. The military used to do this. Maybe they still do. Some doctors would go through on the military bill, and Correct. the deal was you pay back uh, in time in the military to Not not a whole lot of time, but yep. a, a, a bit of time in the military, and then you're free to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Paul. Now, could we just move on to an, or a health coalition for a moment? What is this vote about, the May twenty sixth, twenty seventh? What what's the intent there? Well, it's
2: a you know as was said earlier in the program, Doug Ford uh, ran his election campaign, stating vehemently that he would not uh, do anything to privatize our healthcare system. He even was calling. People out that they were lying if they were challenging him on that statement, and then shortly after, what does he do? He brings in Bill sixty. He's going to go down this road of privatization. So the health, Co- the Ontario Health Coalition, it's been fighting the fight to keep public health care for twenty five years in Ontario, and so the coalition decided that we needed to have a citizen run referendum throughout the province of Ontario in response to this profoundly undemocratic dismantling of our public health care services. So this way, everybody has a vote to have a choice. And maybe they'll vote and say, yes, we want to go down this private road. But We believe pretty strongly and from the feedback that we've been getting already that people are uh, not comfortable with this privatization route. And they're quite upset that they were never given the opportunity to cast a ballot in the first place to say yay or nay to going down this road. So we, um, we're quite excited about giving Ontarians this opportunity to vote, and we think it's really important.
0: So on the 26th and 27th, will this referendum carry any legitimacy for the Ontario government? Do, do they have to abide by the results?
4: I would uh, say that uh, the Ford government will reject it. They're not interested in that kind of thing. Uh, they say they're for the people, of course they're not. however, if it's broadcast properly and the and the people of Ontario realize how many people are quite upset and took the time to vote, then that could put pressure on this government, and that would include some of the conservative supporters mm-hmm.
1: And I think people don't know what's going on. And, and, and that's one thing I found out through talking with even just healthcare colleagues is that a lot of this seems to be happening behind closed doors. People don't really understand the implications and what's being pushed through legislation. And this is getting the word out there and, and people are starting to ask questions. And the majority of people want to keep our health care public.
0: Well, now, Megan, you raise a point I wanted to touch on in that, Supporters of the Ontario government's initiative here, this Bill 60, such as the Fraser Institute and the Canadian mm-hmm. Taxpayers Federation, they claim that this decision will improve access to health care and help reduce the backlogs and surgeries and other procedures. How will that work? They also claim, by the way, that it will save the government and ultimately the taxpayers a lot of money. Is all that true?
3: No.
2: It's part of the it's it's the spin that they're putting out there, and it's happened in so many jurisdictions where they have made these claims only to be proven false. You know, you look at British Columbia with Dr. Brian Day. The the government finally was able to get into some of these private clinics that are set up in British Columbia to do audits. Because, of course, the B.C. government has a similar system as we do here. On, we call it OHIP. And within one month, they found that there was half a million dollars in extra billing and many thousands of dollars in, in double billing. So they're driven to make a profit. And if you're working within a system of public public, provided care it's not about making a profit and uh, so how will you make that profit you have to be deceptive to some degree or you have to reduce the skill set of your workers pay them less uh, give them less in you know perhaps benefits or that type of thing in order to make your profit because that's what that's what drives you is making a profit point
3: out that the doctors in canada are, first of all, they're all in private practices, and except for those, those who work actually in hospital. And even they bill the, the, the health plan individually. But th- they're all in private practice, and they, they submit their accounts, their bills, to the uh, health care provider the in Ontario. It's, it's piecework. The more you, you see, the more people you see, the more that you treat. The more you're paid it's a numbers game it's pretty obvious so that that's why they they don't want the complicated cases they the term is called cherry picking they cherry pick they want the the quick and easy ones and then they can crank them through and you can see this kind of thing happening In medical practices, um, they just run them through as quickly as they can. And, of course, this is a a risk to the quality of what they're doing. I mean, you can only provide good quality if you give enough time to what you're doing, whatever it is. And uh, so the the quality of care is an issue in these clinics, and they're not well uh, supervised and assessed. And often they're complaint-driven. So the fact that it's it's piecework is, is one of the risks. But, you know, we've lived with this for the last 50 years, and it works okay. But uh, in this situation, you know, they're really uh, working, put, putting a few other variations into this system with this cherry-picking that I, I said, they're making it so that they see more of the quick
4: and easy cases. Access is the key in our healthcare system. In the private for-profit sector, They don't reduce the wait list. They rearrange it so that people with money, whether it's from insurance or out of their pocket, will get the service first. Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. And and I think the fear, too, is that it's probably likely that the majority of these clinics are going to be situated in urban or around urban centers. So it's just going to make the health inequities that we already have in our system and the decreased access, particularly for Vulnerable and marginalized populations that tend to live in the rural and remote areas of Ontario worse.
0: Now, what about... The oversight implicit in Bill 60, for example, how will staff be regulated? How will ultimately the taxpayer be assured that these clinics are doing what they purport to do?
1: So I can start. I think this is probably one of the most concerning pieces of Bill 60. There is a piece where there's deregulation of healthcare staffs. That includes physicians, nurses, technologists, who can identify themselves as such and what kind of procedures each individual can do. And at this point, it's left to new regulation that either hasn't been developed or hasn't been made public knowledge yet. So that's quite concerning. The internal process for dealing with complaints and oversight will be left up to the private clinic. So the ministry will no longer have a role in this. So, again, how exactly this will look, I think, is not exactly clear, but definitely concerning.
3: If I, there's a, been a very interesting comparison mentioned in this regard, nursing homes. And look at the storm that happened with the COVID uh, epidemic, and it became blatantly clear how well or not they were regulated, supervised, uh, scrutinized you know, with a significantly greater numbers of their elderly residents dying from this disease compared to other situations. I don't see anything in what we're hearing about this new act. that would lead me to feel any more confident in how these clinics are going to be regulated and, and scrutinized than nursing homes have been.
4: We have to realize also that private sec- the private sector their information is private it 's confidential, and a lot of information you can't get and other information it would be very hard to dig into and i don't suspect this particular government is interested in regulating or over regulating or whatever private for profit clinics there's a danger yeah. there we might not be able to investigate the harm that's being done there or in insufficiencies probably. Mm-hmm. Very much so.
0: If I can go back to a point that Megan actually uh, touched on. uh, Now, ever since Canada adopted its current universal health care system through the Medical Care Act of 1966, citizens have struggled to maintain perhaps the illusion that the wealthiest citizens and the most impoverished citizens would receive the same level of health care. Now, sustaining this illusion uh, has required a high level of denial, as the evidence would indicate that such belief is simply not true. For example, indigenous people living in remote settings up north receive an inferior level of care and must frequently travel great distances to access that care. The Ford government seems to be making explicit what Canadians have not wanted to admit all along, namely... Wealthy patients get better treatment than the rest of us. Is this true?
3: I don't think it is.
1: I don't know. I might argue that one. I think that, you know, wealthy patients tend to have higher socioeconomic status. They have better access to resources. They're able to navigate the system much easier than someone not in a, a much rural or remote area that really just doesn't doesn't have the tools to do so. Um, I think any of us who have had ourselves or a family member have to deal with the current healthcare system is that it's a, it's a tricky system to navigate. And higher education and better access to resources puts you at a better playing field.
3: I don't think it's built into the system to be that, that it's meant to be discriminatory. You've touched, both touched on the issue that a lot of it has to do with location. You know, if people are not living in an urban center, if they're living way, way far away from like uh, some of the reservations, for example, I mean, by just by their circumstances, it's more difficult for them to get many services, including medical, just by the the sheer distance. But I I agree that uh, it, it certainly helps to have someone to help you navigate the system and I've done this many times, uh, just as I'm retired, but I certainly, uh, if I hear that a a friend or family member is sick, and uh, I try to get involved just to be their advocate, because it does help to know someone who knows the system, who can push. And sometimes it's the squeaky wheel that does get the grease in the system. You have to keep asking and, and you know, pushing a bit to get what you need. Which is a system problem. I, I don't think that that's the the, the the system was designed to be that way. But in the real world, sometimes it, it it comes down to that. You have to you have to push to get what you need.
1: I think you, you used a good word there. I think it's that that advocacy and being able to advocate for your healthcare needs is is really important. And some people just do a better job.
0: Now, if I were a newly graduated surgeon, why would I work in a public not-for-profit hospital? When I could make more money at an independent health facility, these IHFs, as they call them. Why would I want high needs patients at a public hospital for whom I would have to spend a lot more time when I could work with more healthy patients at an independent health facility who would require less of my time? You know, I mean, listeners should be aware, Paul, you've already alluded to this, that the doctors are paid by the procedure,
3: not by the hour. Well, I guess one question that needs to be thrown out there is, uh, what did you go into medicine for? Right. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be about looking after people who need your help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might seem a little old-fashioned these days, but <laughs> that's, that's mm-hmm. uh, something that uh, I hold dear, and, uh, and I think that that uh, is not always so. And so if you want to make lots of money, then you play the system, as, as we've talked here, it's, and uh, see as many people as quickly as you can and get rich.
4: For practicing, yes. uh, graduates uh, realize that in the hospitals, has all the equipment, can, can serve everybody, has everything, whereas some of the private clinics are quite restricted in what they can do. Mm-hmm. So if a, do- if a young doctor wants excellent experience... The hospital would be an excellent place to be. Oh, it is.
3: Yeah, it's a far better place to practice medicine. It's more interesting, more challenging. Uh, it's professionally uh, a much better place to be. If you want to get rich, you go to a private health clinic and play this game. It's it, I'm putting it quite simply, but that's basically what these people are doing. It's it's interesting. Uh, I've uh, in my clinic, I. Uh, had the opportunity to have doctors come and work with me, for me, if you like. I would provide them with the office and the instruments and the staff and everything. And uh, and uh, I would, if I had other doctors coming to work in my clinic, then I could work in another room or another location. It, I was in a position where I could have done something like this. And I, I came to realize that there is indeed a pool of doctors mostly young doctors and, and young surgeons in particular, who have gone through their training, many years of training. Often these people are 30 or more years old with kids by the time they come out, and huge medical debts, I must say. And so they, they're ready to operate, and the reality out there strikes them. There aren't enough operating rooms available. I'm not saying there aren't enough operating rooms, but there aren't enough operating rooms available to the young surgeon. So he ends up uh, giving what we call it a list. So Tuesday morning, doctor so-and-so, you have got your list. Okay. And he, he will have a list of patients he's going to operate on. And that's the way uh, the language that we use. So, but if he's new to town and if, if there are a lot of surgeons in town, he may not even get operating time of his own, a list. So what does he do? Well, he can do uh, consultations in his office and see people and see uh, you know, if they need an operation and what and so forth and plan it. But it, unless it's a very minor procedure or he's got a pretty well-equipped office, he have an operating room of his own, in other words, he has to wait to get into the hospital operating room. One of the ways that they do that This uh, And it's as part of the problem is that the old guys don't want to retire because we got new guys coming in, but the old guys won't leave for whatever their reasons, you know. And so they're kind of clogging up the system. But if they don't have a full list, then Dr. Old Guy will say to Dr. Young Guy, well, you know, I only have two cases this morning. You can have the rest of my time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the reality of the operating rooms in Canada Mm -hmm. that... uh, but it does not need to be so. No. If we had governments Sorry. which would fund these uh, hospitals and their operating rooms and the nurses to, to run them, we could be running these operating rooms 24-7 every day of the year. And we would very quickly clean up this backlog that we've got right now and problem solved. So this whole thing that we're dealing with right now is, is a created problem, totally unnecessary, if the governments would just fund what we've already got, there are hundreds of, waiting, of operating rooms in, I don't know how many hospitals in the province that are sitting there in this situation, empty most of the time.
2: That is very true, Paul. I, I did OR booking for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Our scheduled time is in Peterborough is 8 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. True. And you need to be done pretty much by 3 o'clock yeah. and then... Any emergencies would be scheduled in, whether it be orthopedic or general or whatever, people coming through eMERGE, those who fell off their bicycle and broke their hip, Bill. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but hours in the day with nothing running or an empty OR sitting there and nothing scheduled into it at all. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. My understanding is around the province, there's ORs that are just not being used at all. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's no need for saying we don't have the capacity mm-hmm. in the public system. We absolutely do.
3: Well, this we've, is, up, we've also know, got the doctors, as I was saying, all these young surgeons who have come through the system. They're ready to go and no mm-hmm. place to go.
1: And don't forget that uh, expenditure in the third quarter that just came out is that our government under, underspent on health care $1.2 billion. $360 million that should have went to public hospitals. So there is there is money there that's not getting spent. And I think what you're talking about, the young surgeons coming out, I think that we can apply this to any of the healthcare professions coming out of school is why wouldn't they go to somewhere where they're going to make more money? I think the answer is quite simple, is that a lot of us went into healthcare because we believe in a publicly funded healthcare system. And that's important to us. And, and morally, we want to stay in that system and we want to support it. And we, I think that we can get out of this crisis.
3: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very fixable. And this is not the right fix. No. No.
1: They're,
2: they're trying to word things in a way that confuses the public. They're calling them integrated community health service centers. So when you hear the word community, immediately think it's, a, it's public. But it isn't. It, they're, they're private right. uh, private clinics. And in one of the sections, I'm just reading it here, a health facility including a community surgical and diagnostic center in which one or more members of the public receive services for or in respect of which facility costs are charged or paid. Mm. So that allows them to charge the patient over and above what they would be receiving Mm. through OHIP. The other
3: thing to point out, though, is that the government is paying these clinics – a facility fee so not only is the government paying the doctor his uh, his fee for service but we're also paying these whoever owns the clinic a corporation the doctor a lot of them are owned by doctors but of nice. operating rooms we're just sitting there empty and we go paying for somebody's private operating room and we've got our own sitting here waiting to be used it's absolutely absurd
1: And the Um, other thing is Ontario funds our public hospitals at the lowest rate across Canada. And it's been suggested that if we can even just get our government to commit to providing the average that most provinces are paying per capita, that would be the first step in the right direction. Huge step. Absolutely. No,
0: really, I I was not aware of that. Ontario is the lowest per capita in Canada. Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's about 1,500, they they say, is what per capita numbers. I think it's about 1,500. and I think the average might be closer to 2,000. With the eastern provinces, I think actually having the highest numbers. Right.
4: The last stat I saw, I've got my hand here, is hospital expenditure per capita by province, and was three years ago, and was done by the Canadian Institute for Health Information, which is not an activist group; it's a very professional group, and it's been that way for years. That is news
0: didn't realize that
3: this is is a very much uh, a conscious plan if you like to go down this road it's a long road that we've been on for many years
0: so back to broken hips but instead of broken hips let's say just deteriorating hips i I acknowledge that Probably most of the hip replacements that happen in Ontario, and I'm just using this as an example, most of the hip replacements in in Peterborough, because this is a community with a certain proportion of uh, elderly citizens, most of those hip replacements are from just general deterioration of the joint so those people will could wind up in a private hospital aren't they going to be very angry when they find out how much the extra costs are aren't, aren't there going to be uh, rebellion against
3: this well what's their choice their anger doesn't accomplish anything because the choice is pay up and get fixed now or suffer in pain and agony with your your painful hip for months and months and months into years that's the choice
0: oh to sit on a waiting list to get into a public hospital exactly so yeah. what is that gap if i can ask i mean you, you said m- months and months and months is it how long could it be
3: well over a year mm-hmm. it's not on know look hear here people wow. waiting with painful hips and knees there was an example that they were talking
2: about think a hip cost in ontario at the hospital would be approximately $8,000. If someone went to a private clinic in Manitoba, because they can upcharge an Ontario citizen, and people who are wealthy would say, jeepers, I'll go there and get it done quickly. They're charging them $22,000. I mean, the upcharging is enormous. And if we deteriorate our public system to the degree that it's not able to provide appropriate services... You know, we're, we're going to lose this system that we've spent a hundred years building. Um, I think it's a very slippery slope that we're on and we really need to stop this government in proceeding as much as we possibly can. They are a majority government for the next three years. We must tolerate them, but perhaps this referendum vote will slow them down when they don't have the public support and they have some pushback. And then, you know, in. Moving ahead away from a right-wing government, we can then revert back to a more publicly run, appropriate-styled mm-hmm. health care system.
0: Okay. Now, if listeners want to get involved in this issue, they want to learn more, they want to get involved in the, the uh, referendum next weekend, they want to take action what can they do I would say
4: I would say that you talk with everybody about the situation but if there's an abuse that you know from your friend neighbor whatever or yourself in in the private clinics report it and I think we could probably do a job of uh, collecting these I know Ontario health <laughs> coalition has already been doing it but let the let the government and the public know how these private Medics ex- do operate. Mm-hmm.
0: When you say we, Roy, who do you mean? The Ontario Health Coalition?
4: Yeah. For, yep. They should be able to do it. Yeah. Okay. But even citizens can start something. Uh, you know, as, as Margaret Mead said, you know, it's uh, uh, it doesn't have to be a large group to uh, uh, change the system. One person could start it. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. okay. There's also a website too, OntarioHealthCoalition.ca, where they can go to information uh, ah, okay. on the vote. I'm not sure, Marion, is there a QR code you can access from the website? Sure there is. There's a,
2: yeah, if someone wanted to vote digitally, they would be able to do that. If they wanted to see where the voting stations are across the whole province, um, there is a map um, and all of the locations have been pegged. So including in here in Peterborough, you can, um, you can go on to the OntarioHealthCoalition.ca website to access that. They could also go into publichospitalvote.ca to cast a digital
1: ballot if they didn't able to scan a QR code. Also some information, too, on social media, more specifically about the Peterborough Health Coalition for local people that are listening. Peterborough Health Coalition has a Facebook page, yes, that's that's true. Thank you, Megan.
3: I think it's important for us to not be so naive as to think that this vote is really going to change anything it's it's the beginning it's the beginning of our pushback Mm -hmm. and uh, this is going to be a very difficult battle because they've voted this into law and now the wheels start turning to entrench this as the new norm and that's why there's an urgency to this to start pushing back now and big before this gets even more entrenched and uh there's a saying, I quoted this in the letter that I put in the examiner that was in yesterday, actually, that uh, leaders can't lead if people refuse to follow. And uh, we need to remember this. We don't have to go down this road. It's not an easy thing to, to determine how, what are we going to refuse to do? Because we need the system. We're, we're sick, we're, we're hurt, and we need help, and we're not People who are in that situation aren't in a position to resist, you know, but those of us who are, are not uh, right. immediately in need need to be looking for ways that we could push back and resist and not let this uh, happen easily, at least, and hopefully not at all. So it's push back, push back and resist.
0: Are there any final observations before we uh move on preparation for uh, the referendum next weekend and the larger issue of uh changing having bill 60 withdrawn? Any oh. last As the
2: as one of the chairs for this uh, referendum, I say please find a voting location near to you in the city. There's about 11 different stations throughout the city and cast a ballot. It's really important that you use your voice and and, and we're giving you that opportunity to do that. And so please do that. We have uh, voting stations in the county as well. Lakefield, Norwood, Millbrook, Keene. So take advantage of it. We've worked really hard to get this up and running. And uh, we need the public to to have a say. Okay, to vote online.
3: Vote online, yes. Yeah, okay. That'll capture a lot of votes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tell everybody.
0: Well then, Marion, Roy, Megan, and Paul, thank you so much for joining me on this panel discussion. This has been our 121st episode of Pints and Politics. You can find this discussion uploaded at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. In addition to this podcast, we're also an occasional radio broadcast on Trent Radio 92.7 FM, here in Peterborough. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints. Politics podcast. We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on my StubSack site. Until next time, this is Bill Templeman.